0: Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on various topics in Jewish theology, philosophy and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Dr. Benji, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is Faith and Fate. So to begin, could you just give us a a bit of background about yourself and how you became involved in Jewish philosophy?
1: Well, Benjamin, thank you so much for having me on the show. And really, congratulations to you and the entire team for this fantastic initiative. Um, I've always asked questions. I've always been looking for meaning in life. um, And I guess my journey um, is still continuing. I sort of fell into it a little bit. When I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and I didn't have the strongest Jewish education. So, um, I wanted to catch it up and basically started learning afterwards. And once I was learning a lot in yeshiva, um, I started to do smicha, rabbinic ordination, um, not by, not by, more by chance. And so, you know, I just ended up writing the exams. And the same with university. I just started a bachelor's and then moved on to honours and moved through all the way to a PhD and just fell into it. Um, and I'm just a lover of, of learning, and I really think I just fell into all of this. Okay, that's great. So um, how, did you get, how did you get involved particularly
0: in um, you know, Jewish theology? And uh, what, what was your PhD thesis about?
1: So my PhD thesis um, really looked at the concept of covenant of Brit and how it relates to conversion and Jewish identity through the um, thought of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, um, and I've always been fascinated with Jewish identity. And I was always thinking to myself, the best way to understand what a Jew is is to try look at how a Jew becomes a Jew. And from a halachic, from a Jewish law perspective, um, you know, there's only really two ways to become a Jew. That's through, you know. Um, matrilineal descent, if one's mother is Jewish, or if one converts to Judaism, and therefore, by looking at conversion to Judaism, it's the best way to be able to understand what rabbinic thought is about when it comes to defining what a Jew is and who a Jew is. So, can you talk a bit more about the
0: the, the concept of, of of a covenant? You mentioned before about a covenant. Your PhD thesis was about the covenant. So, um, I mean, you can also mention your new book. Um, which you've just uh, brought out. Um, So tell us a bit about that.
1: Thank you so much. So, yeah, I had the opportunity to convert my PhD into a book, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan, Um, really a 10-year project. Um, And this is the first podcast I'm speaking on because it literally just came out um, about the book, so it's very exciting. And it's called Covenant and the Jewish Conversion Question, Extending the Thought of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Um, when it comes to covenant, you know, um, it really sits at the heart of, of theology, of philosophy, of what it means to be a Jew um, and what it always has. You know, according to 20th century philosopher Martin Buber, one way to discover the, what he calls the inner rhythm of the biblical text is by identifying what he calls the late word, which is the principal word that is repeated throughout. And the term covenant is found no less than 289 times. In variant forms throughout the Hebrew Bible, so it's clear that this is what Buber would have called late word, and it's got incredible, you know, underlying meaning. What Rav Soloveitchik did with this term, um, you know, obviously there's a whole ancient Near East con- um, content context of this and the implications it has, and I dealt with that um, in my book, or Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik famously did in um, in Kol in um, his incredible speech um, where he related to Shira Shirim, he basically talked about the two covenants, the two primary covenants in his um, 1956 address. The first is what he called the covenant of fate, and the second is what he called the covenant of destiny. Others later have, have re this covenant of destiny other things. Um, Rabbi Sachs, Zichron Racha, famously famously um, called it a covenant of faith. But essentially, the first, the covenant of fate represents the fact that all Jews are united in a common bond. This was born in the, um, you know, in the exodus from Egypt, whether it was, you know, he talks about it in times of the exodus of Egypt. And he also relates it to modern times, whether it was Hitler or Pharaoh, whether it was the slavery of Egypt or the concentration camps and the gas chambers, they did not distinguish between you know, Ashkenazi and Sephardi, re- religious and irreligious, young and old, male and female. A Jew as a Jew as a Jew. And that exposes our common fate, who we are as a people. And we have a connection, a horizontal connection between all of us, whether we like it or not. The second covenant, once we left Egypt, once we formed as a nation, the question was, what is this nation going to do? What is our purpose? And that Rav Soloveitchi calls the covenant of destiny, and that was actually established at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, when they got the Torah, which literally, you know, shattered and transformed the moral landscape of the West, and serves as a as a real moral compass um, for for humanity to this day. And that really set out in the Torah the mission of the Jewish people, and it really set out the destiny for which we need to work towards. So with this conception, we understand that to be a Jew, you know, is not just a nation, i.e. not just, you know, a people. It's also not just a religion, right? It's more than a religion. It's more than a people. It's more than the fate. It's more than the destiny. It's the culmination of all these different identities and these individual parts coming together in order to establish who the Jewish people are. And the fundamental basis for it all is this concept of covenant, our relationship between human beings and one another, between human beings and God. It's an almost a promise um, that supersedes any one generation, any one moment, something that was established in Egypt and at Sinai, and that will continue for perpetuity. So if we can talk a bit about the, let's go through each of the different covenants.
0: So you mentioned before the first one was the covenant of fate. Um, So what, what are the different examples we have of the covenant of fate? Um, in Jewish theology and in the Bible and, and uh, in Jewish history, really? What, what You mentioned before about the Holocaust. Any other examples of that?
1: Yeah, I think it provides us an excellent prism for understanding who we are as a people. What the real message is, is that, you know, there's so many things that divide us. The covenant of fate is what unites us. Um, interestingly, and Rav Soloveitchik points this out, quoting the Rambam, Um, but it's brought out in the Gemara. If you're Poryash Minat Sibur, if you separate yourself from the fate of the people, there's actually a question about your Jewish identity. You're not considered, you know, just like, you know, on the religious element, if you don't keep certain commandments, um, if you speak maliciously about people, if you don't keep the Sabbath, um, there's certain questions of your relationship in that sense. The exact same happens in the covenant of fate. If you don't care about um, fellow Jews, if you don't experience that plight, if you don't understand that, then there's a lacking. Rav actually quotes a beautiful Tosvot which talks about essentially Siamese twins. And there was a debate between these Siamese twins as to who owns something. And basically, um, you know, the judge said, you know, when, when defining and deciding, said you both own it. And they said, no, this one owns it and the other one said that they own it. So the way that they were tested is where they took a hot liquid and put it on the body, and both of them screamed at the same time. While we have different heads, while we look like separate entities, at the end of the day, we all feel each other's pain. And this is, I think, deeper than theology, deeper than philosophy. This goes to the heart of what it means to be a Jew. And that was born, as we said, in the Exodus from Egypt. The, the seeds of it actually happened um, you know, even earlier, it happened actually um, with Abraham, with the Brit Bainabitarim, with the covenant of the parts. Um, and it really started then and it developed and it started the process with Abraham and it ended at that time. So actually there was another covenant before, which is the covenant with Noah and his generation, which is a more universal covenant. Um, and that is with all of humanity, With um, the sign of which was the rainbow. But the particular covenant of the Jewish people, the first one was this Brit Goral, was the covenant of fate. Began in the times of Abraham, and it was developed through to the time of Egypt, and it underscores our fraternity, our brotherhood, the capacity to relate to, empathize with, and understand that we truly are one people. Kol Israel, Zelazel, we're all responsible for one another. So you mentioned before about this universal. So we have just uh, get in my head the the history of it. So we
0: have Noah, we have Noah's um, universal covenant. And then we have Abraham setting this uh, laying the foundations for the covenant of fate. And then we have at Matant Torah, the giving of the Torah, we have the covenant of destiny or the covenant of, of faith. So what's the difference between the covenant the universal covenant that was made and the covenant of of, of fate what, what, what are the different ramifications of that
1: So the primary difference is really that the universal covenant is established and applies to all of humanity It's between humanity and god you know the 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 symbol of the rainbow interestingly in call, according to the Hidoshirim, one of the Guerrarebas you you know to create a rainbow. Ultimately, while you see seven beautiful colors, it comes from one white light. And that one white light diffracts. And that diffraction is what produces the rainbow, the kaleidoscope of colors. And that is the same when it comes to humanity. We need to have an understanding that we all come from one white light. We all come from one source and we need to be there for one another. The way that we need to uphold that covenant is that there are seven basic laws that all of humanity have to uphold whether it's not eating the limb of a live animal, whether it's not murdering, whether it's not theft. You know, it's all brought down in the Gemarian and Sanhedrin, um, you know, establishing court systems. And that applies to everyone. That is universal. Once the universal has been established and there's a brotherhood or a sisterhood, you know, a relationship across humankind, then we get to the particular. Abraham distinguished himself, whereas Noah was all, all of humanity. Abraham distinguished himself from those around him, which was symbolic in, you know, the different Midrashim and legends that talk about him bashing the idols, him being, you know, Avraham means a father of many. It also be, means being on the other side, being an iconoclast, trying to go into different spaces and different places. And once he differentiated himself and he heard this calling, Lech he went to himself. Once that happened, he it became a particular covenant. And it was particular with his family. And that was passed down through his family, with Sarah and Avram passing it down. Those that they brought into their tent, so those that converted, and then those that were born into it. So Isaac and Jacob and all of you know the twelve tribes, and it carried down all the way through to um, the Jews that were in Egypt, and the Hebrews of Egypt um, really were part of this particular covenant. So if you're a Jewish person, um, you know, and you want to look at covenantal theology, there's a universal. Um, responsibility that we have to all of the world, and really this applies to everyone and on top of that, we have a particular uh, responsibility through the covenant of fate and I think that the way to relate to that and the way to understand it is just like you may have you know different concentric circles of relationship and spheres of influence in your own life. Uh, you relate differently to different people at different times. so as an example, you may relate slightly different to your siblings. And parents as to your cousins and slightly different to your cousins, as to your community and your community as to the rest of the world. And it's the same you know inherently when it comes to faith communities. We have different concentric circles and we have different expectations. and we're not necessarily the chosen people in the sense that you know we don't have, there's no responsibility with it. We're more the choosing people that have to go and do something about it. And that really represents our covenant of fate. But it very much leads us to the covenant of destiny. The covenant of fate by itself is not enough. And therefore, from the universal into the covenant of fate, finally we transition into the covenant of destiny. And by the way, Rav Soloveitchik doesn't talk about it in detail, but when learning for, for my work on this, I had the privilege of learning with Rabbi Binyamin Tabori, Zichron Racha, um, who I had a Chavrutah with. I spoke about it with Rav Lichtenstein, uh, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Zichron who was my Rosh Shiva, And I had a weekly Chavrutah with Rav Riskin. Um, and Rav Riskin Schlitter um, always went on to the next covenant, which was relating to the land of Israel, and that's where we are able to, you know, establish and live as a society this um, fate and this destiny in the one place to really be a, a legame, to be a beacon to all of humanity. So, how does the um,
0: the, the 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 covenant of fate and faith? Um, you mentioned it's relevant now with. with Living in Israel, how does that manifest itself now for those who are in the diaspora, those who are not necessarily living in Israel? How how can they
1: connect themselves to the the, dest- the covenant of fate and, and, and faith? So first of all, it's relevant to everyone. You know, "Kol All um all all of us are really responsible for one another. Is not restricted to any specific time, any specific place, um, and that's the uniqueness of the Jewish people. Uh, you know, I have had the privilege of traveling all around the world and there's a certain, you know, excitement and there's a certain, you know, natural relationship and fraternity that I feel with Jews all around the world. Of course, with all people, particularly with Jews as another Jew. So there's nothing that's specifically confined to um, whether it's the covenant of fate or the covenant of destiny slash faith. Nothing confined specifically to Israel. What What's unique about Israel is is that it allows us to be able to live it in a, in a different type of way. Because, it, you know, whereas outside of Israel, the world, um, you know, we're really the Jewish people are a minority amongst a majority. Within Israel, it's the reverse. The Jewish people are the majority and there's other minorities. And therefore, the sense of covenant of fate spills over, you know, almost in a universalistic way. Because the covenant of fate doesn't just you know, relate to the people that I see in synagogue, the people that I see in school, those type of um, areas. Of course, the, the general covenant universal one applies, but it spills over into most people I bump into in the street, you know, how I pay my taxes, who I vote for, how I behave in a much broader sense. And therefore, you could argue that in in the state of Israel for an Israeli Jewish citizen, they are, you know, living this covenant of fate and this covenant of destiny at a different level um, when they pay taxes, when they go to school, when they drive in the streets, because it's really coming to life in a very visceral and a very practical way. And that's why we find ourselves in a halachic reality that's different to, you know, any time before in the last 2000 years. Sadia Gohan famously said that our nation, the children of Israel, is a nation only by virtue of its religious laws. That applies 100% with outside of Israel. Once we come into Israel, there is an added element, there's an added value that we can really bring it to life. And that practical um, ramification um, really makes a difference, but it's not there to preclude anyone outside of Israel. It applies to everyone, but there, I, would, I would argue that there's a greater expression that one can um, have within the state of Israel. So if, if I can play the devil's advocate a bit, um,
0: can a Jewish person lose um, any of these covenants um, especially the covenant of, of, of fate. Can can is it possible to lose that, or is it something that we just you know have to accept whether we like it or not? And if it's something that we have to accept whether we like it or not, I mean, someone might just argue, well, I didn't accept it. You know, I was I wasn't asked when I when I was um younger. Can I be Jewish? Should I be Jewish or not? It just was thrusted upon me. So, um, this is it something that you can lose? And if it's not something you can lose, well, why? Surely
1: God should give us the option whether or not to decide. So there's basically, you know, three different answers to your question. And within that, there's a million different answers, like every good Jewish question. Um, there's a lot of good Jewish answers. Um, let's go to the one extreme. The one extreme is, yes, you can lose your Jewishness, which means, you know, there's a, there's a famous case, and it's actually chapter three of my book, Covenant and the Jewish Conversion Question, deals with this in depth. Um, And I think in a way that hasn't been studied in the same way, using the frame of the covenant of um, fate and destiny of Rav Soloveitchik. And basically, that's the case of a mumar or meshumad That's someone that converts out of the faith, right? What do you do? By the way, there's a famous case of someone called Brother Daniel, um, who actually was a monk um, that came to Israel and he had converted out of Judaism, but he wanted to use his Jewish card to be able to, um, under the law of return, come to Judaism. So there's very interesting interplay between these covenants and the capacity to lose it. By halacha, we would have paskened, we would have decided that he was Jewish, but by Israeli law, he wasn't Jewish, which leads to a lot of the conversion issues. But the one opinion um, that's brought down in the halachok dolot in the Go'onic period, Ibn Khabib and the Maharshtam You know, they say that actually the children of apostates are rendered out of the covenantal community completely, which basically means if you turn your back on the Jewish people in fate and destiny, Judaism turns its back on you. Full stop. According to the Marishtam, you can actually become not Jewish. Okay? It's not a very popular opinion. It's not a very codified opinion. But the opinion does exist within Jewish law. On the opposite extreme, you know, you have people like, well, you have the famous Gemara in Sanhedrin that says, the famous Talmudic statement that says, even a Jew um, that has sinned, they remain a Jew no matter what. And, you know, Rashi really made this huge. And a lot of um, his contemporaries and a lot of people down the line, you know, like from Sadiq on to Rashi, all the way down, um, you know, most people really felt that you can't get out of it. Philosophically speaking, um, it's not something that we are not familiar with, right? At the end of the day, whether you like it or not, your parents are your parents. Biologically, your parents are your parents, whatever you do. You know, if you're an American citizen, even if you leave the country, you still have to pay tax in America. Even if you revoke your citizenship, it takes years before you don't have to pay tax in America. It's imposed upon you. That is the nature of being born, right? We are born with certain qualities that are inherent, that we cannot change. Whether I like it or not, you know, certain diseases, God forbid, certain looks, God forbid. Yes, you can, on a superficial level, you can have plastic surgery and do certain things, but there are certain biological character traits that we cannot change. Judaism believes that we don't just exist on a physical plane, we also exist on a spiritual plane. And therefore, there's certain inherent spiritual characteristics that are the same, and Judaism is one of them. Finally, there's a third opinion, um, and that's brought down by Nachshan Gohan, Rabbein Otam, Maimonides, right? And, you know, one of the best definitions I, I saw in explaining it is actually Robert Scott, who's an American sociologist and anthropologist. And he says someone that's like a deviant can become basically, in a symbolic sense, in but not of the social community in which they reside. And in that sense, and you know, I could only really see it actually since I'm speaking to a Brit, I'll quote Diane Ezra Bazri Basri, who explains it's possible that it's such a person according to the rules of the religion be considered both a Jew and a Gentile at once. And what that means is that the Mordechai brings us down and other commentators that there's certain context within the Torah that uses the word achicha, that uses the word fraternity or brotherhood or family. Now on a On a basic level, when it comes to identity, marriage, divorce, conversion, according to these people, once a Jew, always a Jew like Rashi. However, that's the covenant of fate. When it comes to the covenant of destiny, if you don't follow the destiny of the Jewish people and you actively turn your back on it, you apostatize, you leave the religion, you leave the people, then certain laws such as inheritance, such as usury, such as other things where the word achicha, where this concept of a familial relationship applies, does apply here as well. And therefore, those laws do not apply. So you could be a Jew by religion. Um, so you could be identified and defined as a Jew when it comes to, you know, if you're converted, you're always Jewish for, for marriage and divorce. But according to some of these opinions, when it comes to usury and inheritance, you're not considered a Jew and you're actually um, treated differently. And I call this the difference between identity an identification. From an identity standpoint, the covenant of fate, once a Jew, always a Jew, according to this opinion. And it's probably the main predominant opinion. However, from an identification standpoint, if you identify not as a Jew, then you're not identified as a Jew for certain treatment um, within within your relationship um, amongst the people and the nation.
0: So that's fascinating. So one of the... Um, you know, one of the more recent topics um, in, in this area is, is the relationship between conversions in the state of Israel. You brought it up briefly before.
1: No, it's an excellent question. So first of all, to appreciate the difficulty and the problem we find ourselves in, you know, the Israeli Olympic team uh, a few months ago competed in the Tokyo Olympic Games and they made history in sport and highlighted a historical question of Jewish identity. There was a gymnast named Artem, Um Dol Kapiat, I think was his name, and he competed in the men's finals. And to cut a long story short, um, he was a very gracious winner, and he got the first gold medal ever won by an Israeli Olympic athlete um, um, in gymnastics, and it was incredible to see. Now, his mother actually came on the 103FM radio in Israel, and she asked where her, her son might provide her with great, with grandchildren she, right, she responded that according to Israeli law, her son could not marry his girlfriend in Israel, but only outside of the country. And she said, I'm not Jewish. But on his father's side, everyone is Jewish, highlighting this element of the painful social problem today caused by the incongruity between Israel's law of return on the one hand and halacha or Jewish law on the other hand. So just to give you the background, right, essentially in, um, In 1948, the State of Israel was born and this grand project started. And it was enshrined in the Declaration of Independence that the State of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for gathering of exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisaged by the prophets. But what was interesting is that in the first article, unequivocally stated that every Jew has the right to come to this country as an oleh, as an immigrant to Israel. That's called the law of return. The problem was the term Jew was never defined. So what does it mean? And in nineteen seventy, the law was amended to include a child and a grandchild of a Jew, the spouse of a Jew, the spouse of a child of a Jew, and the spouse of a grandchild of a Jew. Except for a person who has been a Jew and has voluntarily changed religion. Right? That relates to Brother Daniel, which I mentioned before. So Jews now defined as a person who was born of a Jewish mother or is converted to Judaism and who's not a member of another religion. But Judaism according to this is different to what halakha is which is your mother's Jewish or you converted according to halakha. So there's a this crazy difference here and there's about you know there's different estimates but I would say between 3 and 400,000 people at least that are Jewish by Israeli law of return but not halakhically Jewish. Therefore we can't um you know consider them a Jew. What's the problem? First of all you have got all these Issues of second-class citizens. You've got these um, people where they can't actually get married in Israel. They go to Cyprus. They do the, all these other things. Second of all, um, we we can have an issue of actual intermarriage within Israel. Part of the incredible bastion of hope that Israel provides is that because you've got a Jewish majority, you can meet, you can bump into someone, and if they seem Jewish, you know, in school, then they're probably Jewish. But this is actually questionable now from a halachic from a Jewish law standpoint. So that's the issue. Um and I think basically what the covenant of fate and the covenant of destiny does and the way we've ex- explored in the book and the new reality of Israel whereby you've got a, a a you know minority coming into a majority where the majority of people are Jewish we can relook at what it means to convert and actually look at the halacha to understand how it applies here. And therefore for example, the covenant of fate component, if someone, you know, goes to school here, lives by all the chagim and the festivals, um, you know, fights in the army to protect the Jewish people, does everything Jewish, right? Should there be any lenience, um, you know, on the, on the, on the, on the faith component, on the destiny component when they want to convert? And a lot of the modern day poskim, um, that, that relate to this reality of, of what Israel means in the 21st century, say yes. Um, And there's a lot of precedent based on this. On the flip side, obviously those that don't look on Zionism um, in a positive light or just look at it in a neutral light or even in a negative light, um, they don't have the same type of view. But it's important to acknowledge and realize that as time has changed, so did the halachic reality, halakha coming from the word move forward, evolve. You know, the, the concept that the bedrock components never change, but the application does. And what the covenant of fate and destiny does is it allows us to be able to consider how we can, you know, really apply this today. And I just want to share a short quote, um, which comes from Rav Soloveitchik. One of the reasons I decided in my book to look at Rav Soloveitchik is that he was a very conservative with a little c, um, halachist. Um, he was a very conservative philosopher He was very machmir. He was was very stringent in his opinions. Um, And people see him that way. But I believe that his paradigm allows one to see this. And in 1986, he actually had an interesting um, conversation, which was recorded um, with Pinchas Peli. And it was actually printed um, back then in the Had on the 22nd of August, 1986. The interview was there and it was, um subsequently cited by the National Jewish Post and Opinion in all different places. And he said straight out, and this was in America in 1986, he says, it appears that 70% of mixed couples have a Gentile partner who is willing to become Jewish and we have to be ready to accept them. We must develop programs and methods, integrate them under the wings of God's presence to convert them and to make of them good Jews. It is hard to get used to the idea But this is the reality, and this idea isn't at all bad. There are Jews whose wives, born Gentiles, have brought their Jewish husbands back to Judaism. We have to change and our method of dealing with converts and conversions. And if Rabbi Soloveitchik, who was more conservative in 1986, said this about America, today, in 2021, 2022, looking in in, in the 21st century, when we actually have a problem of intermarriage with over 300,000 people who are not halachically Jewish but are recognized as Jewish because of the law of return, we have to really think about this seriously. And we have now Matan Kahana, who um, in politics is um, looking at, um, at at really developing this forward as the minister of religious affairs. There's a lot of religious thinkers. There's a lot of political thinkers. But I believe that halakhic sources that sponsor that rabbinic sources based on this philosophic, philosophical understanding of covenant can look at the fate and the destiny to help us chart a way forward so that this halachic problem can develop not a solution outside of halacha, but within halacha, so that we can truly create a win win outcome. It's not going to be easy, it's going to take courage, but I believe, you know, I've set out a platform for this within the book, and I think that a few courageous thinkers need to take the step forward within halakha, never for to, for one second to step outside of it to be able to solve this important problem and to help the Jewish future. Okay,
0: Rabbi, Benji, Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Benji, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much for for, for joining us on the podcast. And um, I re- highly recommend uh, Rabbi Dr. Benji's book. Um, in the description of this podcast, there will be a link to, to buy the book and there'll be a short description of it. Um, a description of
1: Rabbi which I also highly recommend. So Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Benjamin and um, good luck to all the listeners out there and very lucky to have you sharing such incredible wisdom with so many people around. Kolakavod.